Chapter 27 of The Heart of Hyacinth by Anoto Watana In the guest room of Madame Ayai's house, the Lamas had waited fully a half-hour. Their patience was well-nigh exhausted. Lamas' nervousness and anxiety threatened to result in utter collapse. The events of the last few months, through which this dissipated man of the world had suddenly found himself to be the father of a child he had never seen, and by the woman his conscience had never ceased to tell him he had wronged, or having their effect upon him. He was a weak-natured man, easily ruled through his affections, but he was not bad-hearted. Many years ago, the woman who was now his wife had prevailed upon him to divorce another wife, that he might marry her. Richard Lorimer's affection for his second wife had evaporated during the honeymoon, and was nameless and dead in twelve months. Since then, his life with her had been dull, aimless, purposeless, broken in its monotony only at intervals by the woman's spasmodic efforts to fan the flame into life. Now a strange and novel emotion was stirring the soul, if soul it could be called in such a nature, of Richard Larimer. He had a feverish, almost childish longing to see, to possess, this child, his own. He was too sluggish and indolent by nature to have an imagination which would have pictured her in his mind. He had a hazy idea that she would be like any other American child, that she would, of course, be shy of him at first, but that the natural feeling of a child of its father would assert its power. He felt certain that she would prove a source of pleasure and comfort to him. Nervously, he paced the floor with irregular broken strides, stopping now and then to look about him, or to answer the impatient remarks that escaped his wife's lips. "'This is beautiful,' she said. "'I suppose we are to wait here all day.' Lorimer glanced about the room. "'Do you suppose there's a bell somewhere?' he asked fretfully. "'What a question. Did we ever see a bell in a Japanese house?' "'The hotels all have them,' he answered. "'This is not a hotel.' Lorimer winced at her retorts. He said a trifle apologetically. "'You see, my dear,' The woman said she was dressing, or something like that. Then we may as well go back to Mr. Blount's. These Japanese women are inordinately vain and spend hours in dressing. My daughter is not Japanese, said her husband, mildly. The woman pursed her lips. I wonder what you really expect to see, Dick, she said, looking at him curiously. You're all unstrung. Just then, I appeared at the door. She came towards them in a state of repressed excitement, and she welcomed her guests with stammering and uncertain words, though she courtesied so repeatedly that the visitors became uneasy. "'My daughter?' inquired Lorimer as soon as I had ceased her kowtowing. "'She will come in a moment. The illustrious ones will pardon the child's nervousness.' "'It is only natural,' said Lorimer quietly, biting his underlip in his own restlessness. Ayai's face, with its humble smile, suddenly appeared alert. She seemed to be listening. "'Ah, now, she is coming, Augustness,' she said, as she crossed to the doors and slowly pushed them aside. The Lormas had not heard the soft patter of the little feet in the matted hall, for a Japanese girl's tread in the house is almost soundless. Hence, when Ayai drew the sliding doors apart, they had not expected to see the girl on the very threshold. They started, simultaneously, at sight of the little figure. With drooping head, Hyacinth softly entered the room. At first glance, 
She seemed no different from any other Japanese girl, save that she was somewhat taller. She was dressed in kimono and obi, her hair freshly arranged and shining in its smooth butterfly mode. Her face was bent to the floor, so that they could scarcely see more than its outline. She hesitated a moment before them, then, as though unaware of the impetuous motion towards her of the man she knew was her father, she subsided to the mats and bowed her head at his feet. The silence that ensued was painful. Then Mrs. Larimer gasped hysterically, This is not, not she! Larimer stooped gently down to the little figure and lifted her to her feet. She raised her face, and for a moment these two whose lives were so strangely connected looked into each other's faces. The father could not speak for some time, so intense were the emotions that assailed him. When he did find his voice, it was broken and trembling. My, my dear little daughter, he said. Then he bent and kissed her. She stood still, almost stonily under his caress, but she did not return his embrace. She quietly withdrew her hands from his. It is unnatural, horrible, said Mrs. Larimer beneath her breath. Low as was her voice, it broke the spell of silence, which rested like a pall in the room. Larimer turned to her quietly. And this, he said to Hyacinth, is your... your mother. She turned her eyes slowly upon the woman and looked at her steadily. Then she said in clear English, You make mistake. My mother is dead. Again an embarrassed silence and constraint fell upon them all. This time it was I who broke it. She turned her head from them as she spoke. Little one, it is your duty to accept the English lady as your mother. For the first time the girl's unnatural calmness deserted her. She ran to Aoi, throwing her arms passionately about her. No, no, she cried. You are the only mother I know. I will never have another. No. What are they saying to each other? asked Mrs. Larimer, watching them curiously. My knowledge of Japanese is limited, said her husband heavily. The whole thing's a farce, she said. Do you find it so? he asked, smiling bitterly. Oh, Dick, we can't be expected to understand a girl like that. She is my daughter, was his quiet reply, and there was a new dignity in his voice. Yes, but she is different from us, so utterly alien. Just look at her. Would anyone believe she was your daughter? He looked over at the little figure, now soothing the weeping eye, and his wife's words found a hollow echo within him. Yes, said Mrs. Larimer thoughtfully. She is still very young and quite pretty. A few years in the West may make a great change in her. Who knows? We may make quite a little civilized modern out of her yet. She is Richard Larimer's daughter. As though she knew they were talking about her, Hyacinth left Aoi and came towards them, though she was careful to keep at a distance. Will my honourable father excuse our presence for today? she said in English. But you are going with us at once, said Mrs. Larimer. With a movement that in a western girl would have seemed rudeness, Hyacinth turned her back slowly towards her stepmother and addressed her words solely to her father. If it please you, august father, she said, will you not deign to permit me to remain here with my... my friends till the time comes to leave Sendai? Her form of speech 
hurt her father strangely. He watched her face, unloving, emotionless, it seemed, when turned to his, and his own grew wistful. He was more than anxious to indulge her. Yes, yes, certainly, he said. I appreciate your feelings. By all means, stay here if you wish. How long before? Will you not permit me to remain one month? she said, somewhat timidly, and her eyes suddenly fell. She could not tell why, but a flood of emotions seemed to fill her heart, so that she could no longer contain herself if she must look into the face of her father. We expected to leave at once, he said gently, but if it is your wish to remain longer, understand, I want you to have your desires gratified. She went towards him falteringly a few steps. She held out her hands uncertainly. He took them quickly in his own. She raised her face to his, and suddenly her eyes became blinded with tears. But when he stooped to kiss her, she slipped to the floor at his feet. He clasped his slender, nervous hands together and looked down at the queer little figure, now seeming to bow to him after the strange fashion of the Japanese in bidding adieu. Then he turned to his wife. We had better go now, he said huskily. Chapter 28 On an early morning in the month of August, two young people were drifting in a light sailboat, in and out of the waters surrounding the rock islands of Matsushima. They might have been new lovers, they were so silent, and always they were gazing into each other's faces, flushing and trembling when their eyes met. The boy, for he seemed still very young, was graceful and of grave, somber beauty. He was tall and dark, the expression of his deep brown eyes was tender and piercing. His lips were well formed, and his strong arms, as he handled the boat, showed that he was no mean athlete. He was dressed in a grey hakama, the sleeves rolled back, his head was bare, and the wind, lifting the soft dark locks, showed his high, fine brow. The girl was small. Her hair, though brown, had a strangely sunny sheen to it, and her eyes were grey-blue, dreamy, and wistful. Homer, as he watched the changing expressions of her face, thought her fairer and lovelier than all the women of the great world he had seen. There was a little padded seat in the boat, and against this she leaned back, trailing her hand in the still water, and watching now the sky, now the bay, now the hills on either side, and sometimes Kamazawa. They drifted about the bay in this silent, thrilling fashion for some time. Then she suddenly spoke. Homer dropped the oar and sat forward. "'Do you know what the days seem like to me now?' she asked. "'No,' he said, his eyes wandering inconstantly over her face. "'They are like a lotus bloom,' she said. "'Always pink and gold, and so beautiful that they are sure to fade.' For a moment he did not reply. Then, leaning on his oar, he said, "'And if the day must fade, will not the morrow be as beautiful?' Ah, no, she said sadly. Besides, we are not acquainted with the morrow. We only know the today, and so the heart breaks at the thought of parting from what is with us now. You are sad today. Yesterday you were merry. I was not merry at heart, she said plaintively. You are very clever, Coma, but ah, you do not know everything. He watched her face in silence. You think because I laugh and say gay things that my heart too is light. No, I do not think that, he said earnestly. But why should you not be happy and gay? You are only a maiden. You cannot know tears. Yet 
little one. He added the old familiar term, little one, so softly that she strained her ears to hear it. She held a lotus blossom close to her face and looked down into its heart. See, she said, holding it towards him, there is one drop of dew in the heart of the lotus. It is like a tear. It too, poor flower, must fade away with the summer. Why do you say it too? Like me, she said. I will not be here when the summer has passed. Her voice broke. You said I should not go. The days pass so swiftly. Only one week more, and after that I cannot bear to think of it. Do you then love this Japan of ours so dearly? She looked about her, her eyes filled with tears. She clasped her little hands together. Ah, yes, she said. And you would not even be content to go to the home of your ancestors for for a little while. I am afraid, she said simply, afraid to leave the land of gods and go out into the unknown. It is the unknown that does such horror for me, and the great seas are flat and bottomless. I could not have courage to cross them unless I were forced to do so. But you would not be afraid to cross them with me, would you, little one? No, not with you, Koma, she said, looking into his eyes. Leaning across, he took one of her little hands, held it a space between both his own, then lifted it to his lips. Never was there such faith as yours, and in one, one who is not worthy to touch you. When you talk like that, Coma, she said with tears in her voice, you make me sadder still, because when I am gone from you I must recall those words. Then if such words make you sad, I will not speak them again. Nothing but joy and sunshine should dwell in your face. So let us talk of happier things. See how near to the shore we are coming. Shall we not land? No, let us drift on. Look how the sunbeams are gliding down the pine trunks. See how they, too, have tinted the green leaves to gold. There are no no pine trees in America, no more, and there are no sunbeams there. The sensei told me so. The sensei is ignorant. The sun is generous. He scatters his gifts all over the world. But he favors Nippon. Yes, he repeated. He favors Nippon. All nature does so. And that America is cold. It has its summers, little one. Look, she said. See, there is a little white fox on the hill there. It is looking at us. Ah, oh, it has gone. That is a good omen, is it not? said Comer, smiling. Oh, surely the foxes are sacred. Everyone believes so except the mission house people. We do not belong to the mission house. We will believe so. How cheerful you are, Comer. You are not sorry to see me go? You are not gone yet. But there is only one week left, she said, and despair craves company. Do you, therefore, give me your sympathy? Wait till the week is gone, he said, and then, if you still wish it, none will be sadder with you than I. Chapter 29 A few days later, it is early evening, and the crickets are making a great bustle in the grasses, while a small grey ape, swinging in a bamboo, is mingling its chattering with the cawing of the crows in the camphor trees. Summer is passing, said Hyacinth, for everything is complaining. I do not complain, said Koma. No, life will always be summer for you. You are not going away from Nippon. Are you? he asked. There is no help for me, she said. I grow more melancholy each day. Is it only Japan you care about leaving? Japan holds all, all that is dear to me. 
and can you enumerate them, the things that are dear to you? She shook her head drearily. No, she said, I cannot. Yet you could stay here if you wished. No, how could I? Did not that young American from the consulate in Tokyo ask you to marry him? He lives here in Japan, necessarily. She laughed. Was he not kind? She said. Why did you refuse him? Oh, for many reasons. Tell me, them. He belongs to the West Country, after all. He does not think so. For your sake, he would forswear even that. Ah, but he does so, nevertheless. The gods, no, his god, fashioned him for his own land. Was that the only reason why you refused him? No, I do. Do not. She hesitated and turned her head droopingly from him. I do not love him, she said simply. You did not love Yamashiro Ishida, yet you would have married him. I did not know better, she said faintly. But it is only a little while since. A month, she said, since you returned. Confess to me, he said, his eyes gleaming, that it was I who made you know the meaning of love, and I will tell you why you are not going to America tomorrow, no, nor the day after, nor until you shall go with me. What can I confess? she said tremulously. I do not know what you wish, dear Coma. She was trembling now. Confess to me, he said, else I cannot speak. For fear I should wrong you, my little one, I will not try to urge you to stay here with me, unless— I, I cannot speak, she said. I know not what you say. Then I will speak, he said. I love you, Hyacinth, with all the life that throbs within me. I love you. Do you understand? No, do not speak unless you can answer my heart with your own. I want you for my own. Oh, I know I have won you. It is not a delusion, for I see it in your eyes, your lips. You do not know it yet. You are so innocent and pure, but I... Oh, I am sure of it. She raised her quivering face to his in the moonlight, and suddenly her head fell upon her clasped hands. Ah, oh, is this love? she said. He lifted her face and kissed her lips, her eyes, then her little trembling hands. This is love, and this, and this. Later they came to a hidden path, arched on either side by the drooping bamboos. The moon was above them, making a silver pathway for their feet. Whither do we go? she tremulously whispered. I know the way, said he, gently leading her onward. They came to an open space, a narrow field, and on the grass the winds, gently blowing, moved back and forth in the moonlight, strange wisps of white paper. It is the path of prayer, said Comer. She understood, and was dumb with all the thrilling of her emotions. Here, he said, the goddess of mercy walks nightly. Though we are no longer sad, let us leave our prayer here among these sad petitions for her to read. Yes, she said, and we will pray to Quanon for those less fortunate than we. Kneeling there in the silver light, they wrote on fragments of paper their simple prayers. Did the heavenly lady, when trailing her robes of mercy through the path of prayer, read also the petitions of the lovers? They left the path of prayer, and climbed to the summit of the hill. Softly they turned their feet towards the mission house. We have said our prayers to Quanon. Now we will turn to the God of our fathers, he whispered. They paused a moment, 
on the missionary's doorstep. She raised her face to his. "'The Reverend Blount may refuse,' she said. "'He will not,' he assured her, "'since he has promised me. Come.' 